All right, well, good morning. And a reminder for you that weren't here the first uh, Sunday of the month in August, why I'm up here, you know, one of the uh, uh, things that the experts say in pastoral transition, because you know Joe's leaving again next August, is that uh, we lessen his time in the pulpit so you start getting used to him not being there. So it's not a constant shock. So the session we've decided I will be preaching uh, first Sundays of the month when I'm here and also while he goes on his uh, vacation. So anyway, so I'm glad to do that and preach God's word to you uh, this morning. Title of my sermon is Check Your Attitude, Check Your Attitude, and I will be reading from Philippians 2, a very, very familiar passage uh, with most of us, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and I'm going to be doing something different today. I am going to be reading from the New American Standard Version, so I know we're ESV here, but, <coughs> and there's a reason why, because one of the words, my title, attitude in the uh, ESV, it's mind, and I think uh, if you've done any study of Bibles, the, the New American Standard is actually a better translation from the Greek into the English. It's just a little more clunkier than the ESV. So, so today, from the New American Standard, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, hear God's holy word. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word uh, that you've given us. It came from Paul, and Lord, uh, we believe it to be the inspired word of God, and that we believe it to speak to our hearts, and I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit will take this word as I speak and open up our minds and eyes to the truth of your gospel. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, attitudes, everybody has an attitude, some good, some not so good, some that need change. There was this man who bought a parrot that had a bad attitude and foul language. Some of you may catch the pun before we get to a few. But that's not the joke. <laughs> the owner tried everything to change the bird's bad attitude and clean up its language, but nothing seemed to work. Then finally, one day in a moment of desperation, he put the parrot in the freezer. 
And for a few moments, he hears the birds squawking, kicking, and screaming. Then suddenly, all is quiet. He opens a freezer door. Parrot flies out, lands on its perch, and says, I am so sorry that I offended you with my bad attitude. I ask for your forgiveness. The guy's astounded at the bird's change of attitude, and he was about to ask what changed him when the parrot said, By the way, may I ask, what did the chicken do? Winston Churchill said that attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. The definition of attitude is the manner, the disposition, the feeling, the position we show towards a person or a thing. It's our tendency or orientation towards others. You all know what an attitude is. And we see in verse 5 of the verses we read today, the word attitude, have this attitude in yourselves which is in Christ Jesus. And that's what I want to focus on today, because, you know, in the weeks and months ahead, we need to have good attitudes, okay? Now, I love our church. I think we all get along really well. I think that this is a loving church, a giving church, a sharing church, and we don't have too much strife. But there are times we have to watch, because we are sinful human beings, our attitudes. And I think this word... Today, this, this that we have will help us keeping our eyes and our focus on Jesus Christ. By the way, Paul uses this word, Greek word, ten times in uh, Philippians. The word is phroneo, and it means the midriff or the diaphragm. And it really is difficult to translate into the English because it kind of combines the visceral gut and the cognitive aspects of thinking. So you're using your gut, you're using your mind. And it essentially equates to our personal opinion fleshing itself out. Now, in today's passage, Paul is writing from prison, and he is addressing some conflict that is taking place in the beloved church in Philippi. The church in Philippi was near and dear to his heart, and they were supporting him while he was in prison. But there appeared to be some problems going on while he was in prison. There were people posturing themselves to take advantage of the fact that he was in prison. And there was division coming to that church. By the way, Philippi was the first church established on European soil. A little background for you that are familiar with Acts, Acts chapter 16. We read that Paul was planning on going on a second missionary journey into Asia, but what it says that he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go there. And instead, he had a vision in a dream that said one night a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him to say, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so he followed that dream. And he got there, and his first convert was a woman by the name of Lydia, who it says was a worshiper of God and a seller of purple goods. She was part of probably a Gentile prayer group that met by the river, and they had somewhat of a knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And it says the Holy Spirit opened up her heart to the gospel, and she became a believer. Now, she was probably upper class, because, I mean, she was a seller of purple, and she had a house big enough to house Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Now, the second likely convert from Philippi was a slave girl who had the spirit of divination upon her, and she was antagonizing Paul every day until one day Paul 
cast the demon out. Now, the Bible doesn't say she became part of that church, but I have an inkling that she did because the Holy Spirit came upon her and the demon was cast out. And I'm sure she heard of the gospel. And uh, she was probably a poor girl coming from the poor and lower class of that community. And then the third converts that are mentioned were the jailer and his family. Now, you recall Paul, because he cast the demon out of this woman, caused such a ruckus because the men who uh, used this girl to get money from no longer had a source of income. So they stirred up the whole city. And they got Paul and Silas thrown into jail. And then about midnight, while they're in there, they're having a praise and worship service. Right? And you know the story, what happened. It says the whole place was shaken. The doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And the jailer was going to go kill himself. And all of a sudden, Paul says, don't do it. We're all here. And the, the jailer comes running to Paul and Silas. And he says those words that every evangelist wants to hear, right? What must I do to be saved? Have you ever had that happen to you? Someone come up to you? Say, what must I do to be saved? What a great feeling to be able to answer that question. So let's look at this church then, all right? You start off with a, a, a ladies' prayer group, a lady probably of upper class means. Then you also have a lower class girl. And then you have probably a working class blue collar law enforcement guy and his family. And this is the startings of a church in Philippi. And that church would grow into a great church. But there was division that was in the church that had to be dealt with. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul entreats two ladies, Eudodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Uh, they may have been part of that original Bible study. We don't know. But he told them that we need to preserve the unity of the church. And to preserve unity, and this is the driving on point, we need to have that same mind or same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. And we're going to need that attitude in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, we don't want to be like that church in the Wales. You know, the Wales across the, the Atlantic there was an amusing story told from Wales of a feud for a church looking for a new pastor. And it read, quote, Yesterday the two opposition groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout above the other. Both called for hymns and the congregation sang two, each side trying to drown out the other. Then the groups began shouting at each other. Bibles were raised in anger. The Sunday morning service turned into bedlam. Through it all, the two preachers continued to try to outshout each other with their sermons. Eventually, a deacon called a policeman. Two came in and began shouting for the congregation to be quiet. They advised the 40 people in the church to return home. The rivals filed out, and they were still arguing. The story was headlined, Hallelujah, two jacks and one pulpit. Now, I'm not expecting that to happen in our church, because we have a well-refined process for bringing a pastor. But the point is, no matter what, there can be rooms for opportunities for division that we need to watch out for. I saw a thing where it was in, in Georgia, it was like you drive on the street and it said, Old Missionary Baptist Church, you know, right up the road. Then you drive past that one and it says, New Missionary Baptist Church. <laughs> There's probably a story in that, right? All right, finally, to the sermon. I have three points, three points today. 
And I'm able to do Joe's, you know, with the same letter, which I don't normally do that too often. But number one, the exhortation. Number two, the example. And number three, the exaltation. Number one, the exhortation. Number two, the example. And finally, the exaltation. Let's look at the exhortation first. The exhortation about how to live, about our attitude. Right before these verses we read in chapter 2, verse chapter 1, verse 27, Paul exhorts the readers to live a life worthy of the gospel. And in these verses we're reading today, he gives us specific examples. But like any exhortation to live a holy life, we must always start with what Christ has done for us first. His grace is the power, the fuel that helps us to live and walk out this life that we call Christianity. You know, even when the Ten Commandments uh, were given to Moses and to the children of Israel, how did that verse start? Before he spoke it, he said, he told him, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. He started off with, here's what I've done for you, now go and obey these commandments. And you see it all the time in the epistles that we read, right? First of what Christ has done for us. For example, Peter tells his uh, readers to be holy. But before he tells them to be holy, he tells them, you know what? God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. Right? So, and we see this today in Paul's letter in in chapter 2. He appeals to four things done to them as believers. Number one, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ... He is speaking to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins and gives us eternal life. Then he says, if there is any comfort from love, the love of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Then he says, if there is any participation or fellowship of the spirit, he has given us his Holy Spirit to live within us, to lead us and guide us into all truth, to comfort us when we need it. Do you see the Trinity involved right there, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all right? Then he says, if there is any affection, any sympathy we receive. Paul says, if you answer yes to any of those questions, then do these things. Live this way. Walk this walk that I give you. He is appealing to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, working in and through their lives. So how are we to live as believers, as members of the body of Christ? Give me a moment here, please. Now I'm going to give you a list, and we're going to go through them quickly. I'm not going to expand on them too much, but you get the picture. They're very self-explanatory. Number one, we are to have the same mind, be in full accord in one mind. Number two, we are to have the same love towards one another. We're to love one another, right? That's how they will know we are Christians by our love. Number three, we are not to get some negatives. We are not to do anything from selfish ambition, all right? Not. Number four, we are not to do anything from empty conceit or pride. Number five, which is really probably the key of the verse, we are to be humble, humble, and count others as more important than ourselves. That's easy to do, right? How many of you count others more important than yourself? How, how, how do we think, Norm, we're in the room? We're the most important, right? My opinion matters the most, right? I'm the most important. 
And then it says we are to look out for the interests of others. Look out for the interests of others, not just merely our own. We are to have one mind when it comes to the gospel, God's truth. And as there is unity in the Trinity, there must be unity in the body of Christ. Our unity must be based on Christ and his word. When we live out these exhortations, there will be unity. Now, unity does not mean we all think the same or have to have the same taste about everything. Because God has made us different. There's beauty, right, in the diversity of our church. It means, though, we are unified by one goal, to be more like Christ, to fulfill our calling as Christians to build up the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that Christ has given to the church, to us, to you, to me, gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Until when? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of God. I don't know about you, but I don't think we're at the unity of the faith yet. But we're moving there, okay? We're moving there. We want to continue to do that. But the way we move there is having the humility of Christ, the mind and attitude of Christ. But we can struggle with unity, right? We can struggle with being of one mind because we tend to be, I don't know about you, but selfish and proud. I have my own interests. They are more important than yours. I have my own opinion. It's the right opinion, by the way. Just ask me. You know, you'd save a lot of arguments uh, with your spouse, right? (laughs) If you would admit that your opinion is not the only opinion. That's where we get in trouble. I know I get in trouble with that, so... I know what's best for the church. Just ask me. I know more than that pulpit committee knows. They don't know what they're doing. Bob and his team, they don't know. I know more. I know what best music we should have at this church, right? We all have different perspectives of how this church or any church should operate, right? Should it be a discipleship focus or evangelism focus? Uh, should the missionary, mission committee focus on home missions or over across the pond? Should we sing traditional hymns or contemporary music? Should the sermons be long or short? I think most of you would probably say short, right? (laughs) Where should the focus be on illustration and application or on doctrine, right? Should we have communion once a month or, you know, every week? We all have differing opinions. God made us all different. But that's why we need the same attitude. We, when we come in here each week, we have, this, have that same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Thinking of others is more important than ourselves. Let's be honest. We think of ourselves as too important. So what is the remedy? What is the remedy for selfishness and empty conceit? Well, Paul gives us that remedy. It's humility. He, it's humility. Augustine said, if you ask me what are the chief precepts of the Christian religion, he said, first, second, third, and always, I would answer, humility. To be gospel-oriented is to think about others, is to be humble. And Paul, in the next verses, points to the supreme example of humility, which is my second point. The example, the example. Jesus Christ is our example. We see in his self-humiliation how he humbled himself before the Father, before us. And he is to be our great example. What was Jesus' attitude? Well, Paul gives us three things. Number one, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Number two, it said he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
and being born in the likeness of men. Number three said he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, either in death on a cross. Let's look at those just briefly. Notice it starts out, if you look at those verses, with Christ's deity. It was while he was in heaven, in the form of God. Now we're talking heavy-duty stuff here. We're talking about his being, his essence, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ. But Christ's humility in these verses is explicitly stated while he was in heaven, where he existed in the majestic form of God from all eternity when he shared in God's glory. Paul was talking about the glory that he had before the worlds were even formed. John Calvin comments, the form of God here is his majesty. For man is known by the appearance of his form, so the majesty which shines forth in God is his figure. Jesus, remember in his high priestly prayer, he says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It was his attitude he had before he emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, I think the King James says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of flesh. He chose willingly to come in the flesh. Man, it's what, Christmas is only a couple months away, right? It's coming fast. Where we celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate him coming, taking on flesh, being like us. The figure of speech, a thing to be grasped, means that something desirable was already possessed, but that Christ did not exploit it for his personal gain. Now, what does it mean when it says he emptied himself by taking a form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men? We're talking about Jesus' incarnation here, taking on the flesh, the likeness of men. We've got to tread lightly here because many people have taken these verses and have mistaked them. This is heavy-duty Christology, we call in theology. To Listen, I want you to hear this. To empty himself does not mean that Jesus ceased to be God or stripped himself of his attributes. John Calvin said, Christ could not divest himself of the Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time that it might not be seen under the weakness of the flesh. He did not lessen his glory when he came. He concealed it. The emptying of himself is defined by two phrases, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Just think about this for a moment. The Logos, the creator of the universe, the Son of God, or as Hebrews describes him, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He chose to come into the world. He chose to become flesh. He chose to submit to the will of the Father. We see his great humility, his submission to the Father. And why did he choose this? To die. Die on the cross for your and my sins. He came knowingly that he would die a physical death. But more importantly, he would die for our sins. And those sins would be placed on him, separating him from the Father at that moment. He chose willingly to be forsaken of the Father for our sins. It would be in that moment that he would endure the wrath of God for our sins. You heard it, I think, once or twice already today. He who knew no sin 
became sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. What a sacrifice. What a Savior. This is the attitude of our Savior. And this is the attitude Paul says for us. Have that same attitude which was in Christ Jesus. You know, folks, what we believe about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about us. Because what we believe about him will determine the way in which we live. We have to have a right understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater. There's no greater religion. The Son of God, Yahweh himself, humbled himself by becoming flesh. Not only a flesh, that he became a servant, a slave to us. So anytime we struggle with pride and selfish ambition, uh, looking to advance our opinion forward, let us look to Christ. Let us look to him in humble, submissive attitude. Well, it doesn't end there, which leads to my third point, is exaltation. The exaltation of Jesus Christ. I love these words. I'll repeat, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every name. Every knee will bow, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that beautiful? This whole passage, by the way, is considered the theological, Christological centerpiece and jewel of the book of Philippians. In fact, many consider it the most exalted prose in the New Testament. And a lot of church historians say that these verses were probably one of the first songs or hymns sung of the New Testament church about Jesus Christ. You remember when Jesus talked to his disciples and he said, The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Well, it also applies to Jesus. Jesus' self-humiliation brought about his exaltation. In fact, it was called a super-exaltation. God has highly exalted him. It is translated highly exalted in the English, but it's in the Greek it's one word. It's a hyper-yipsu. Hyper, you've heard of the word hyper, right? Things greater. Beyond, to elevate beyond, make exceedingly better, a higher degree. That's what he's talking about, how Christ was exalted. The grave could no longer hold him. He is risen. His super exaltation included his resurrection, his ascension, and his sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning from his throne today. And we know that Jesus Christ today is in heaven with myriads of angels who are singing, as it says in Revelation, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He is given a name above all names. We know that Jesus already has many other names, right? Son of God, Son of Man, Emmanuel. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, the Overseer of our soul, the Word of the Light, the Lamb of God, the Alpha and Omega, to name a few. 
So what is this name bestowed on Jesus that is higher than no names? Well, I wanted to quote a guy from a commentary because I think I would have messed it up, all right? So, and I think this is good, though. Uh, Kent Hughes, uh, Joe uses him a lot. It is God's own name, Lord, Kyrios, which was used in the Greek Old Testament to represent Yahweh, the personal name of God of Israel. Verse 11 identifies Jesus as Lord, Kyrios, which is the same as Yahweh, giving the name Yahweh is the ultimate honors because God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, that is my name. Yahweh is the name that trumps all other titles. The awesome covenant name of the God of Israel and our God. And you know what, folks? Not only was he given that name, but one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it talks about everything. In heaven signifies angelic beings. On earth designates earthly inhabitants. And under the earth refers to dead human beings and fallen spirits. Every knee shall bow. Every mouth confess. Think of all those people who have blasphemed, scorned the name of Jesus, mocked him. They will bow and confess. Pontius Pilate, who sat in judgment of Jesus, will bow the knee and confess. Evil, vicious dictators and rulers and politicians who have abused their power and destroyed people's lives will bow and confess the name of Jesus Christ. Every unbelieving heart will confess it. In dismal submission and despair, even Satan will bow and say it. But you know what? We, as his church, his sons and daughters, we can bow now, willingly and joyfully, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We can do that today. So circling back to where I started at the beginning with having the right attitude, we must always look to Jesus as our example. We must live lives of humility towards each other, especially when it comes to matters of his church, his body. You know, we we will have disagreements. There will be opportunities for division in the future. But if we focus on Jesus Christ, who did not look out for his own interests, but our interests, we will avoid dissension. If we focus on Jesus Christ, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, we will be less willing to advance our agendas and cause strife. For as John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Amen? Well, you know, today we'll be taking part in his supper, and we get to confess him as our Lord. And we get to remember his great self-humiliation, dying on the cross, for our sins. And we will also get to remember his resurrection and super exaltation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great example we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can praise you now, exalt you, lift you up, and confess you as our Lord. And Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you as Lord, that you would just move on their hearts, that they would confess you today.
as Lord. Father, as we prepare to, to our hearts to take communion this morning, I pray that you would just help us to see what you have done for us. Help us to understand more your grace that sheds on us each and every day of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.